to this episode of Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I am Misha DeVogel, a historian with the Australian Army History Unit. The previous episode of Australian Naval History podcast series dealt with the rescue in the South China Sea of Vietnamese refugees from the Nha Hung. This episode will discuss the Navy's interaction with refugees, mainly from Afghanistan and Iraq, in the years following 2001. The vessels were attempting to make landfall on Australian shores. Known as suspected irregular entry vessels, the acronym CIEV went into common public usage. There were over 220 CIEVs throughout that decade. This podcast does not try and cover all this ground. In particular, we will not cover the children overboard, CIEVX and Tampa incidents in any detail. They deserve separate episodes in their own right. In this episode, we will discuss the first CFs intercepted by the frigate Warramunga and CF-10, which was intercepted by the patrol boat HMAS Wollongong. These interactions should, be, should give the listener a sense of operations and the immense challenges faced by the commanding officers and their ship's companies. I should warn that some of the material in this podcast may be confronting for some listeners. To discuss the RAN and the CFs, I am joined, joined by... Commodore Richard Minhenick, who commanded Warramunga, which intercepted CFs 1, 3, 5 and 6. Richard had previously served in the 1990-1991 Gulf War. Subsequent to his command of Warramunga, he commanded the frigate Anzac. Commander Wesley Heron, who commanded Wollongong at the time of the intercept of CF-10. He also saw active service in the Persian Gulf. He is now the principal of the consulting firm of WHR Australia. He was also um, in command of the Wollongong at the time of the intercept of CF-8. Professor Rob McLaughlin from the Australian National University is an expert of the law of armed conflict and maritime law. He has been a frequent presenter on the Australian Naval History podcast and joins us again today. He is also a former naval officer and was the executive officer of Wollongong at the time of the intercept of CF-10. And finally, Associate Professor Cameron Moore from the University of New England. He is an expert on maritime security, military law, public and international law. He is also a former naval lawyer and in that capacity provided legal advice at the time of these CF arrivals. Thank you all for joining me. First off, to set the scene, Rob McLaughlin, why was there an influx of refugees arriving by boat to Australia? Yeah, thanks, Misha. Well, there'd always been a steady trickle of boats up until about 1998. But in 1998, we had about 200 people arrive, uh, unauthorised arrivals by sea. But then in 1999, we had suddenly this surge. We had 86 boats, 3,721 people. In 2000, it was 51 boats, 2,939 people. And in 2001, it was 43 boats, 5,516 people. So what was going on? Well, Geopolitically, Afghanistan was the was the biggest push factor. From 1995, the Taliban obviously had control of much of the country. They were persecuting uh, some of the minorities. It was quite violent, a very oppressive regime. There was obviously war between the Northern Alliance and the Taliban. So quite a lot of people fled Afghanistan and they were finding their way to uh, Indonesia and many other places. Uh, and many of those in Indonesia were looking to move to Australia. Additionally, about a million or a bit over a million Afghanis had fled to Pakistan from about 1996 to 1999 to escape a terrible drought in Afghanistan. And they were all living in squalid refugee camps. They were also looking for a way out and many found their way to Indonesia. 
Then in 2000, the Taliban refused to hand bin Laden over to the US. Uh, the US wanted to extradite him after the 1998 US embassy attacks in Africa. And the UN imposed sanctions, and this had significant economic uh, consequences for people in Afghanistan, which is another push factor out uh, of Afghanistan. And all of this, of course, was happening before the 11 September 2001 attacks on the US. At the same time, in Iraq, we've still got Saddam Hussein persecuting the Marsh Arabs and the Kurds. But in February 1999, there was an uprising uh, of the Shia against Hussein's mainly Sunni regime. This was violently suppressed and quite a number of Shia fled the country as a result. So as well as the many Afghans that we had uh, fleeing Afghanistan, there were quite a number of Iraqis also fleeing Iraq. And again, many of them found their way to Indonesia. Then finally, in Iran, we had uh, in mid-1999, there was a student uh, and reform protests, which these were violently put down by the regime. And again, a number of people uh, fled Iran to try and escape that uh, regime and were seeking shelter elsewhere. So consequently, in 2001, there were a lot of Afghans, some Iraqis and some Iranians on the move. Many thousands were in Indonesia looking to... Uh, you know, secure transport to Australia. And actually, this is the mix in the main of nationalities we generally encountered during Oprilic's majority of Afghanis with a uh, scattering of Iraqis and Iranians. Okay. Thanks for that overview. Cameron Moore, in August 2001, the Norwegian container ship Tampa picked up over 400 Afghan refugees from the stricken Palapa 1 and took them to Christmas Island. They were not accepted by... Australia and were taken to Nauru by HMAS Manura. This offshore detention arrangement became known as the Pacific Solution. Can you explain what the law, as it related to refugees, before Tampa was and how it changed? Yes, it was a pretty pretty radical turnaround in a space of a very short time. I remember actually being involved in drafting legislation in the middle of the night uh, in the course of those few weeks. It changed pretty dramatically. So initially... Uh, as Rob said, there's a trickle of refugees and the regime was that once they hit the migration zone, which is the low water line or water within ports, then they had an obligation to be taken into detention but also to be uh, given legal advice and assistance in preparing an, uh, an application for a protection visa. So it was quite a benign regime looking back on it and the Navy's role really was just to bring the people in and hand them over to immigration authorities. Uh, that changed very quickly after the arrival of Tampa and the offshore entry regime came in and uh, there was famously the excision of certain Australian islands, uh, including Christmas Island, Cocos Island, Ashmore and some others. Uh, they weren't excised at all, just that that was the name that had to be given to the regs for the effect. But what happened was that those places remained inside the migration zone, but anyone who arrived there became an offshore entry person and they could then be removed to offshore processing centres in Manus and Nauru, and they couldn't uh, be put into what was... Uh, into. They became separate to the immigration detention regime. They didn't have the right to make a claim in Australia. They could only make the claim offshore. And a lot of the provisions that we put into law at the time were trying to deal with what we're about to hear about with the CFs, uh, indemnifying ADF personnel from criminal and civil liability and allowing them to use force to get people off boats and onto RN ships or into aircraft to be taken for offshore processing. Right. 
So Waramunga intercepted the Indonesian fishing vessel Aseng on 7 September 2001 as she headed towards Ashmore Island with refugees. Aseng came to be designated as CF-1. Richard Menhenik, why was CF-1 heading to Ashmore Island? Well, there, as you've just heard from Cameron and um, and from, from Rob, there, were, there was a build-up of, um, of refugees in Indonesia. Um, and, and there was also a very organised people smuggling um, organisation that, that had been um, uh, created in, in and around Indonesia, Malaysia and so on. There was a lot of money in suspected um, illegal entry vessels and a lot of money in uh, potential legal immigrants. So we understood it was about $10,000 US per person or $15,000 US for a family to book a pack passage to Australia. So we're talking about a big business enterprise here. Um, and Ashmore is the closest um, piece of Australian territory to Indonesia. Um, it's, it's only about 60 nautical miles off uh, Roti, which is um, in uh, West Timor, uh, whereas I think Christmas Island's over 100, maybe 160, I'm not sure now, but Ashmore was the closest. Uh, we'd had a lot of history with, with patrol boats intercepting um, people and, and, uh, and obviously illegal fishing up there previously, so... You know, it, it was it was very much on on the radar of the organisers. Um, the boats were very unseaworthy. They were normally um, a, about to be abandoned. You know, well beyond um, being good fishing vessels any longer. So it was a one-way trip, and uh, the crews were very untrained. They might have been a semi-trained skipper, but the other crews were kind of landsmen, and they were basically given given a chart and a direction and told to head south, and, and they'd find Ashmore. So Ashmore was probably the easiest one to get to, um, Misha. That's that, that's why I think Ashmore was on the radar right at the start. Could you take us through the interception of CF-1? Yep, certainly. Well, it, it was obviously way back in 2001 and uh, HMAS Warramunga was a brand new um, Anzac frigate then. It had just been commissioned on the 31st of March and we'd just done our work up and we we're on a Southeast Asian deployment at first since commissioning. And we were leaving Vietnam in company with Manura and Canberra to go to Basama Lima exercises in Singapore. Uh, and we were diverted whilst at sea, basically, to Ashmore Reef. We were told to get there as soon as we could. We had, a, uh, I think, a, an eight-hour logistics visit in Singapore uh, instead of the Basama Lima package. And uh, we shot off straight down through the Indonesian archipelago to Ashmore at the same time as Manura was diverted, obviously, to Christmas Island. Um, to deal with the Tampa. Um, it was actually a four-hour logistics visit, I think. So we arrived off Ashmore Reef a few hours later. Um, we focused straight in on the mission. Uh, we worked through the what-ifs and issues, the rules of engagement especially. My view was you had to get the rules of engagement right before we could do anything. And Cameron's already mentioned the rules of engagement when it came to how we get people on and off boats and so on and so forth. We had no helicopter. Um, in fact, we didn't have a helicopter for the CF-1 uh, incident at all. We had no boarding training as part of our basic mission. You know, that's what patrol boats did in those days. Um, and we were very aware that we were pretty ignorant about what to do in this sort of situation. Um, despite this, we got two members of Sea Training Group on board um, who, was, who were minor war vessel Sea Training Group. So they came on board and we set up two boarding parties um, with their help. And I think we got a pretty good effective operational plan um, and then 
we basically got to Ashmore, oh, just a couple of days, I think, before um, what was called CF1 turned up. It was it was a kind of a, a inter-island ferry, um, very overloaded. I remember the seaboard might have been um, half a metre. Uh, I think in the end it had over 230 people on board. When my boarding party went on board the first time, we only counted about 150, 160. We found more hidden each time we went back. Um, so the, the boat was coming down. Now, under the law, under maritime law, we couldn't, we had no rights to intercept or board it until it crossed into the contiguous zone. So we tracked it. One of the great things about doing these operations with frigates is we had really good radar. So we had radar that was designed to intercept small missiles. So we could, we could actually detect wooden fishing boats you know, 50, 60 miles out. Our navigation radars wouldn't do that, but our, our high-tech anti-missile radar would. So we detected it quite easily. Uh, and then I sent the boats off um, to monitor it and then to issue it warnings. Luckily, we had an uh, we had uh, Indonesian linguists on board who could um, actually give some of the warnings to the crew in in Indonesian as well, and so we actually boarded it three times, and we turned it around each time and sailed it back towards the edge of the contiguous zone. And each time we got off, the boat, of course, turned around and headed back towards Ashmore. Um, we did it three times, uh, and it got more and more fraught. Um, each time we did it, they, they were um, increasingly unhappy um, and we had a ride occur basically on the final occasion. Um, so we then um, got the crew, kept my boarding party on board and, and we held um, it, a, it about 14 nautical miles off Ashmore so it never got into the territorial sea. And um, it, it, there was a change of leadership all the time. One of the complexities with this issue is the crew's not actually in charge. There's different groups of people on board who take charge as the situation gets more fraught. And obviously there were lots of kids and very young babies, you know, young babies being held up and, and all this sort of, of, of confronting issues for, for my crew. Um, so we basically held it off Ashmore Reef um, until the manure turned up on its way to um, Nauru with the people from the Tampa and she was diverted back to us to then pick up the people from this boat who were then put on board the, um, the Tampa and went off to Nauru as, as well. So that was basically the end of the, of the CF1 incident, which I think um, went over two or three days um, and, uh, and, yeah, completed, I think, on, on, on the 9th of September in 2001. Can I just ask, what happens to these ships at the end, like to the unseaworthy vessels? Oh, look, I think from memory it was burnt, um, disposed of at sea. Um, I didn't have time to worry about that because CF 2 and 3 turned up almost immediately um, and uh, off we went on to that. But uh, Rob and Wes might know what actually happened. Last time I saw it, it was sitting in the, in the lagoon in, um, in Ashmore, um, but it wasn't there when I went back there, I don't think. Rob, can you take up the story from here and briefly tell us what happened with CF2 and then subsequently with the refugees? Yeah, so CF2 was uh, carrying about 130 mainly Afghanis and it had actually run aground on Ashmore. It was detected on the 9th, 10th overnight uh, of September. She was very unseaworthy, as Richard said. Many of these boats, almost all of them, were very unseaworthy. And so the people in CF2 were then transferred into CF1, which, as Richard said, was now empty and uh, in the lagoon. Um, and 
CF2, in fact, partially sank. Now, Gawler was the on-scene commander, the patrol boat HMAS Gawler. I think Chris Tazolis was the CO. And her boarding party searched all of these transferred people once they had uh, been um, taken over to CF1, and they discovered quite a, a number of knives. The CF2 transferees told uh, Gawler's boarding party that they would throw themselves overboard, it's reported, uh, if there was any attempt to return them to Indonesia. By the 12th of September, um, some of these people were, were quite agitated and they had threatened to uh, not take any more food and water, for example. So on the 13th of September, CF2 had been uh, refloated again, so she was rafted up to CF1 and then the, the people could then uh, spread themselves out a bit more with a bit more space across both CF, CFs 1 and 2, the, the two different hulls. Um, the CF2 people were then uh, transferred to Tobruk on the 22nd of September for transport to Nauru. Okay. So, Richard, that brings us to CF3. Would you mind taking us through what happened with CF3? Yep, certainly. Well, that that was basically just two days after CF1 and CF2. Uh, CF3 was a much larger vessel. It it was 40 metres long. It was a coastal trading vessel, um, which gave us additional challenges, of course. But um, we had uh, information that was coming down. We went out to to start to shadow it at night. Uh, we were completely darkened because um, the experience learned from CF1 was if the people knew you were there, they, they could they could get um, quite agitated quite quickly and it was a danger to, to life at sea. And, and our big issue by this stage was was how to do this um, operation uh, very, very safely um, because we had very, uh, we had a mixture of illegal immigrants on board these vessels. You had kind of two groups. You had a whole bunch of young men um, and then you had family groups and the, the, the family groups typically had had kids from the age of a couple of months old, or and, or even very pregnant women, um, and so and there were kind of two different groups of people, and they were almost separated in the CF CF. So the families tended to be in the after part of the ships, and the and the young males tended to be in the forward part of the ships. And our real concern was how to maintain the safety of, of everyone on board whilst doing the job. Um, so we actually picked up CF3 northwest of Ashmore, and as I said, we, we tracked it very covertly as it entered the contiguous zone northwest of Ashmore. By this stage, we had a helicopter on board. Um, CF3, as I said, was a very high, very big vessel with high freeboard. It carried over 150 illegal immigrants. Um, we, we boarded just as it uh, crossed into the contiguous zone and once again we were we altered course and steered it back towards Indonesia. Even though we knew that wasn't going to work, we, we were trying to, that was the instructions we were given, were to turn back the ships. Um, so we'd turn it back towards Indonesia just before it left the contiguous zone. My, once again, my, my boarding party got off and then, of course, it turned around. Um, my, my problem then was that it was going to miss Ashmore Reef. We were well out to the west of Ashmore Reef um, and we were tracking it from just over the horizon and it appeared to be lost. It had no navigation equipment on board. None had been discovered when we boarded it the first time. It had an untrained crew and they clearly had no idea where Ashmore Reef was. Um, so um, I... One of the big things in doing this operation, as, as we learnt it, 
was to really involve, I'd spoken to the patrol boats in Ashmore Reef before that to get their experience because they had much more experience than we did with handling these sort of situations. Um, and obviously my XO, Simon Gregg, and my command team, and obviously the safety of life at sea was forefront for us. Um, so we thought, well, how can we get her back into the contiguous zone so we can actually board this thing? So we went on board, we gave her a rough chart, um, which might sound an odd thing to do, um, uh, but we gave her a rough chart showing where Indonesia was and their position um, to allow them to go back to Indonesia. Now, we, we of course, knew they wouldn't. Um, so not surprisingly, once they worked out where they were, they, they turned towards Ashmore Reef. But this time they were to the west and south of Ashmore Reef. Um, not surprisingly, when it turned towards and crossed the contiguous zone, we reboarded it. When attempts were made to turn it to the north, we had a full-on riot. It was a very difficult vessel to board. Um, I'm looking at photos of it from a presentation I gave, and we had to put let, uh, wooden ladders up on the side of this thing to get onto it. It was a big boat. Um, but we had a number of riots. At one stage, they turned towards us, and I had to increase speed to avoid it ramming me. Um, and it was getting dark by this stage, and they were south of Ashmore Reef. Um, so we then started to warn them of the dangers. Now, Ashmore Reef is quite sandy and lagoony from the north, but anyone that knows it knows it's pretty rocky and dangerous from the south. Um, and they were heading straight into the south of Ashmore Reef in the dark. Uh, so we warned them numerous times about the dangers on the southern reef, but they were ignoring us by this stage. And so we're about 54 hours into this operation by this stage and it was pitch black. We had no trust with them by this stage. The leadership on board the CF kept changing. My exo, Simon Gregg, had been basically in, the, in, in one of our, in our ribs, rigid in whole inflatable boats for, um, for, for a, a day and a half on and off by this stage, swapping with some of my other people. Um, we knew they had 154 people on board, including around 50 children and no life jackets. Um, so the CF wasn't obeying any instructions. So um, our boats were in the water. Um, the direct concern once again now was safety of life. They were about six cables off the reef to the south when we managed to stop them. Uh, you could hear the surf crashing in the distance up ahead. Um, and we stopped them by agreeing to take them all on board. Um, that was their demand. Um, and I said, yep, we'll take it all on board. And, and that's when some of the command issues get quite interesting with Shaw, which is obviously going straight back to Canberra, I presumed. I was lucky in Warramunga in a way. You know that old Nelsonian thing? You don't want too much communication. We were a brand-new Anzac. We, we'd just been delivered, and in the Anzac project, we'd been delivered to the specs of 1996. So we hadn't been retrofitted with satellite um, communication systems yet. So I basically just had a had a um, HF in, uh, sort of phone. Uh, uh, Captain David Thomas was the CEO of Newcastle, who was north of the reef at the time, and he was sending messages back for me in in some ways to to shore. I was then told that I couldn't take them on board. I and I said, well, I'm taking them on board. And then I was told I could take half of them on board. And I said, well, I'm taking them all on board. So I basically um, did my own thing uh, and got all of the people on board and we then had 154 illegal immigrants on the court on the um uh, quarter deck of hmas warramunga the area just below the flight deck um 
And uh, and that was the end of the Siev 3 incident. I had my steaming crew on board Siev and, and, we, and we took the ship around and into the lagoon from the north. Um, so basically, um, yeah, Newcastle launched a helicopter um, and uh, I think we averted a major disaster and saved 154 people and then I was going to sort out... Um, um, whether I disobeyed orders or what the ramifications were of having 154 people in an Australian ship and how we got them off. Um, that was a problem for the next day. The real problem that night um, was saving the 154 people. And as I said, the incident lasted about 54 hours. And I think we missed, I think they missed running aground by about 1,000 yards. Can I ask what happened? Like, how did you get them off and where did they go? Um, we got them off about two days later. Uh, they went back on board the CF. Um, and then I think they went off to Nauru. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So we've reached CEV uh, 4, which uh, involved the infamous children overboard incident. Wes, um, would you mind taking us through, uh, or can you please outline the at sea aspects of this intercept, which became a political controversy? Thank you, Misha. Yes, of course. CF4 was intercepted by HMAS Adelaide under the command of Commander Norm Banks at the time. Uh, Norm has now uh, passed away, um, but I hope I do justice in um, outlining the events um, of CF4. So Norm had orders to stop the CF without risking safety of his crew or the boat people. Um, he did the, um, similar to Richard's response, um, delivered the warnings, fired the warning shots. Um, there was panic on board and the Navy finally got on board and had orders to board and got there and turned the sieve around and sent it back towards Indonesia. Um, the children overboard saga started when there were threats of throwing children overboard reported. Um, threats of throwing children overboard and people lifting up children were the reports according to the statements. Um, and as it transpired, no one was ever thrown overboard. So no child was ever thrown overboard. So um, there was a lot of conjecture over that, and I know that's going to be a subject for another another podcast. Um, so... Oolong um, limped back towards Indonesia um, with a steaming party uh, on board from Adelaide and uh, there was an engine sabotaged at one stage um, during that process. Norm then was asked to take um, the CF into tow and obviously we've already heard how towing these teak vessels opens up the boards very quickly and it's not our preferred um, modus operandi. So um, the catastrophic occurred um, during the tow. The Siev opened up. Um, the people ended up in the water. And a bit like Richard, um, Adelaide ended up with um, some 200-odd um, suspected uh, unlawful non-citizens on board. Um, they were then taken to Christmas Island and uh, eventually ended up in Nauru, is my understanding. Right, okay. So, Richard, Waramunga then intercepted CFs 5 and 6. Had the nature of boardings changed by this stage? How did they proceed? 
Uh, yes, they had changed. Um, the first two CFs had been obviously in, in early, set, uh, first three, sorry, and then CF4 had been the September period. There'd been a bit of a gap. Uh, I forgot to mention with the CF3, um, this this is all happening while the um, while the twin towers and the Pentagon were hit by the planes on 9/11. Um, so if you look at the dates, we were doing stuff at sea uh, while 9/11 was going on ashore. Um, we then uh, CF um, five didn't turn up until the 12th of October. So you're talking about three or so weeks um, after after I think CF four concluded over over at the Christmas Island area. Um, we were actually about to go off to Darwin and have a break. We did 119 days out of 125 days at sea in relics, uh, totally unexpectedly because we were supposed to be on a Southeast Asian deployment and then we were supposed to be part of a, of a big Navy celebration in Sydney Harbour. Um, and so around about the 12th of October, we were told to go to Darwin to have three days R&R, rest and relaxation. And, of course... You know, as, as you're leaving, there's a whole bunch of fishing boats sitting north of Ashmore Reef, and my eagle-eyed navigator, Paul O'Driscoll, said to me, sir, that doesn't look like a fishing boat. <laughs> and, of course, it wasn't. It was CF-5. Um, and so we, we, we picked up CF-5, um, held it, and um, we had um, Wyala um, was was at Ashmore, so we 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 detained CF five, and Wyala took over to hold CF five at Ashmore, whilst um whilst we were we went to Darwin to to pick up a um an army security element of about fifty four army personnel, um, um so we picked up the the we went to Darwin we picked up the army personnel. Uh, because a decision had been made to take to take a boat back to Indonesia, this was the big change. Before that, we'd been intercepting them, making sure they didn't get to Australian land, or and then they were being sent off to offshore islands. Um, but this time, it had been determined that we needed to take a boat back to Indonesia to try to stop um, the influx coming down. Uh, so we were the first one. So, so myself and my team. And Norcom um, planned the operation in Darwin. Um, we left Darwin, I think, probably on the 15th or 16th of October. We did some boarding practice with the Army people. The Army people had never been to sea, I don't think, so we used a tug in Darwin Harbour and we trained them in boarding operations. Um, and I have to say that they had eyes like Puss's duff poles, I think would be the expression, big, round and wide, because a lot of these guys had never been out of sight of land, I don't think, and suddenly here they were jumping up and down the side of a, of a Navy frigate um, on rope ladders into small hull inflatable boats and then boarding tugs, a tug as, an, as a practice um, illegal entry vessel. So we arrived back at um, Ashmore Reef on the 17th of October um, and off we went. Um, we took control of CF5 from Wyala. We embarked, I had, I'd made the determination that, once again, safety of people. Um, we were very worried about riots and sabotage of, of engines and so on on board this sieve because the only successful way to get this boat back to Indonesia was to make sure its engine worked uh, because it had to make the final 12 miles under its own power. Um, so if you recall back in CF1 and CF3, I spoke about the two distinct groups of illegal immigrants, the males and the families. So we embarked 80 of the, um, of the potential illegal immigrants on board Warramunga. I embarked the families. I got the families off the CF. The reason I did that was I figured if we, 
if the ship sank on the way back, at least I had the, the women, children and the fathers on board the frigate. I just had to deal with young males who I thought might be better swimmers than, than babies, obviously, and it separated the vulnerable people as well. Um, we had 47 single male illegal immigrants were left on board the Siev. Um And uh, so off, off we went. We had to repair its engine uh, because they hadn't made a reasonable attempt at trying to destroy the engine. And under its own power, we um, escorted it northeast towards Indonesia with the goal of returning the CF to Indonesian waters. Um, my boarding party and the army security element acted as a steaming party and the security party throughout the operation. Um, we needed that because, if, as anyone knows, these old wooden boats, the engine room is not separated from where the people were, so access to sabotage stuff or to start to rip the boat apart would be very easy. We managed, I think the, the illegal immigrants thought they were heading towards Darwin. They didn't realise we were heading as we were heading north. They thought we were heading east. Um, we did a bit of interesting manoeuvring with the moon and sun at sunrise and so on, so it looked like we were heading more east than we were heading north. So we thought this through very carefully. We always had boats, I think, astern of the Siev in case people jumped overboard. That had been threatened, as, as has just been said. And, uh, in fact, I forgot to mention on CF3 we'd actually had babies held over the side but not actually dropped at one stage. CF3 was probably the, the, the most fraught one I, I did up until CF5. With CF5, we made the decision to arrive off, off the Indonesian island of Roti in the morning. So, you know, people are out there uh, um, least ready at uh, 4, 5, 6 in the morning. Um, so the transit north was uneventful with only a few minor altercations, but the fragile mechanical state of the boat remind, remind, demanded constant attention from my engineering team. So we got to Roti, southeast of the island, at 3.30 in the morning, uh, and a, a approval was given um, to transfer, to go on with the operation and to transfer the families back on board the CF. Um there was obviously some initial resistance. Um, this, the, 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 way our, the way my sailors handled this, um, it, you know, even now, what, 20 years later, I can still hear the, the cries and the screams as we put the, the people back into these boats and sailed them back on my ribs to this wooden thing. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of my sailors are still heavily affected by it as well. Um, when we told them of our intention to return, that that um, it would go back to Indonesia, the, y- the young males on board got very angry and hostile. They broke down the after cargo hold bulkheads to the engine room. They destroyed all the fuel lines and the engineering pipework. One attempted to set themselves on fire, but we quickly extinguished him with a AFFF extinguisher. There was self-mutilisation going on, razor blades, um, to cuts and arms and legs happened and numerous young males said they were going to um, uh, kill us if we, no, they were going to kill themselves if we went. Um, we, as I said, we had a lot of distress and anger. We had one father, you know, was so angry we had to forcibly detain him in a way to make sure his family was safe. Uh, we'd, we'd defueled the boat so there was only enough fuel for it to get to Roti and we made sure the master and the crew on board were very aware of that. Um, it was just enough provisions to sail to to Papila, which is in Roti. 
So at about 7 o'clock in the morning, my boarding party disembarked and off we shot. We had three ribs um, and we disappeared over the horizon because we knew if we stayed there, um, they weren't going to go anywhere. And I was, by then CF6 had turned up and was being held by um, by Runter um, off Christmas Island and we were told to go and, because we had the army on board and Arunta didn't, so the idea was to take CF6 back next. But I kind of said no and I sat over the horizon because to my, in my view it was my responsibility. These people were still my responsibility. And we sat and watched this this boat on my very good radar um, for a number of hours um, and it just sat there because we knew that they'd, they'd ripped the fuel lines out and we wondered could they actually fix the engine. Um, and I wasn't going anywhere until I saw that boat heading into port. And after a few hours, we saw it get underway and we didn't move until it, we saw it disappear um, between the headlands of the island on radar and I knew they were safely in port. And then we headed off to, Ash, to Ashmore and um, into CF6, which I won't go into much detail about, um, um, but basically a runter had held CF6 off Christmas Island it had been, we turned up, a runter then shot off, I think, to Darwin to pick up an army security element because we'd got the first boat back. The intention was to do the same with CF6. Our problem was that the illegal immigrants had had quite a few days to totally destroy the engine. Um, the turbo of the engine, diesel, looked like it had been smashed to bits completely. So it took about six, seven, eight days, and with the great help of a few mechanics ashore, uh, at Christmas Island and the brilliance of my engineering stokers, they rebuilt a turbo diesel into a non-turbo diesel. And after five or six days, we did sea trials up and down um, off Christmas Island and the boat was working a treat. I think it was working better than it was <laughs> before we fixed it. And once again, we did the same thing. We took the families on board Warramunga. Uh, we left the, the young males on board CF6 and we steamed back towards... Um, uh, Indonesia. Now, the, the seas off Ashmore are much, much rougher than off Ashmore. At least they were on that occasion. And these boats, as I've said, were pretty awful. And the boats started to fall apart. Richard, um, do you mean so, off Ashmore or off Christmas Island? Oh, sorry, off, off Christmas Island. Uh, the, the boats started to sink. So once again, Simon Gregg, my great XO in the steaming party, um, he said, look, we don't know if it's going to last the night it makes. It might. So I made the decision to take all the illegal immigrants off onto Warramunga and the steaming party and to scuttle it. So we, we then had um, all the illegal immigrants on my flight deck and the quarter deck because I had too many to fit on the quarter deck. We rigged up awnings for sun cover. And, um, and then I remember getting the, um, the agreement from the shore authorities to sink it, but I was told to make sure it didn't burn for some reason. So by, by this stage, there was a little bit of um, you know, frustration on board ships. I thought, well, we might make this a gunnery exercise. So um, we got all the um, illegal immigrants' um, suitcases off, and they were quite happy to see this ship get blown to pieces because they knew that meant they weren't going to go back to Indonesia. So we, we put some um, 50 cal into it to start with, um, uh, sorry, some some small arms, some um, some some um, five point five six ammunition, which which my boarding party had great fun shooting at it. Then we did the fifty cows, and then we sank it with ten rounds of five inch. Um, I have to admit, it was burning a bit by the time we sank it, but it was a uh, frustration reduction exercise. And then we had the illegals on board. Um, 
and uh, and that was the end of CF6. And uh, I think we transferred them to HMAS to Brook. I'm a bit rusty on that. To Brook had come out as the um, as the larger ship, and and then I think they went off to I think Nauru as well. Uh, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And that's the end of that was the end of CF6. Richard, these boardings were pretty unprecedented for the Navy and obviously you've just had your uh, um, reduction exercises then to get rid of all of the emotional stress, I guess. But how did your men and women deal with the operational emotional challenges more broadly? Uh, well, what I had to do as, a, as, as the commanding officer was, was to focus the, the ship in on professionally doing the job. Um, I wasn't in the business of commenting on my own personal views on, on, the, on the policies of what we were doing. I didn't want to overcomplicate for my sailors all the issues that I and, and others could, could get about because our families were getting a lot of this from back home. This was the first time we'd done operations in an internet era. So what we'd just done, I mean, when, when I did the Gulf War, which you mentioned at the start, we sailed away and the only contact we had for, with Australia for the, you know, the six-month deployment and the 55 days of the Gulf War were mailbags. You know, those of us who in this podcast have been at sea know that you get the mailbag in whenever you do a replenishment at sea or when you go to port. You've told your family to number all the envelopes and, you know, you open number five before you open number nine and so on and so forth. Suddenly in this operation... We had internet on board. We had email. Um, and so what I had to do was actually work out, well, we actually can't talk to our families because we're on an operational thing here. So I sent a, um, an email letter off. I got permission off all the sailors who were happy for me to do it to all their families and said, look, we can't tell you what's going on. Um, um, we're going to do it as safely and professionally as we can, but please keep sending stuff to us and I'll give you updates as the commanding officer every now and then. So I tried to to shield the sailors as much as I could from all the stuff that was happening, but a lot of that was still coming into the ship. So you really had to focus them in on what the mission was. You had to, but also we made sure that we did everything. We really, we really worked the what ifs. We made sure we got the ROE right. We couldn't do anything. We actually demanded increases in the ROE before we did CF5 because we said this is basic to doing this. We've got to make sure we got the legal stuff right first. Um, and so I really had to make sure that we were operating with a good moral compass. We're paid and we're basically at the end of the day, we're paid and supported to professionally and, competent, and competently implement government policy, but we have to do it in accordance with legal requirements and we have to do it ethically. And I think some of the people down in Canberra and others didn't quite understand some of the ethical and, and moral requirements that the captain of a ship has when it comes to safety of people at sea. That's why I made that point about CF5. If CF5 had sunk, I was going to go in and get them. I didn't care that I'd be going in two miles inside Indonesian waters by then because I'd put them there. So I already made that decision in my mind and we workshopped how we we're going to go in and get them. Um, and hopefully we'd get, get them before any died. So we basically, how did we handle it? Um, we... I didn't burden the sailors with it. I walked around the ship a lot and I talked to them and my command team talked to them and they responded brilliantly, as Australian sailors do. Um, and I've got nothing but the highest regard um, for the crew of Warramunga um, and I don't think when we came home that the government and some others actually realised 
what had actually occurred from from the stress levels and so on and so forth. I remember when we arrived back in Port Phillip Bay, which was our home port at the time, it was brand new. Um, um, you know, no one met us except except our ship's chaplain, and I think that indicates um, that we were kind of operating at a level that a lot of people ashore didn't quite realise. So I don't know whether that answers the question, but I, you know, even after all these years, you can feel the the emotion and the and the issues surrounding it. But so I think keep it simple, keep it moral, legal, ethic, ethically. Walk around the ship and talk to them. Um, but what my ship's company did to, to feed these people, to look after their medical and dental and everything else was superb. And I think, you know, we were quite happy, basically, that the CF6 people didn't go back to Indonesia. Um, you know, but we were just implementing government policy as competently and professionally and ethically as we could and, um, and trying to keep it like that. Before we move on, because we have a, a varied audience, would you mind going into what ROE actually is? Yeah, sorry, ROE is, is rules of engagement. So um, basically in, in any, any um, well, certainly in, in democratic nations um, uh, where you're under the rule of law of the civilian government, you have rules of engagement that reflect the international agreements and domestic law of that country. And so before you can do any operation at all, you have to get the rules of engagement correct. I remember before I went and did CTF 150 in the Persian Gulf, so Commander Task Force 150, which was the anti-terrorist operation, I went to Attorney General's department because that's they're the legal experts. And, and with, the, um, with our good naval lawyers, we negotiated rules of engagement and you had to try to get them to understand you needed certain um, rules of engagement. So basically it's making sure that the Navy... Um, operates in accordance with international and Australian law. And so there's a whole massive book with a whole bunch of specific rules which tell you, you know, whether you can turn radars on and off, when and when you can fire, when you can board, who can get on and off your ships and so on. And all that has to be agreed legally before you do anything. And are these changing on the fly in the change between, they can. you know, turn back the boats and um, towing them to Indonesia? Oh, absolutely. The rules of engagement for this operation evolved from CF1 onwards, the, the rules of engagement we had for CF5 were much more, uh, much, I wouldn't say less restrictive, but, but, but more fulsome than the ones we had for CF1. And I'm sure that you no know, Rob can take you through some of that, but the, the, almost the most important person I had with me on my ship was my lawyer. And the, the, the thing about the lawyer is he or she needs to understand you, the, you need a lawyer who gets the legal side but also can get the people in the maritime complexion at, at the same time and mix them together. Um, so having the lawyer with you is is 200% better than not having the lawyer with you um, because, you know, you're, you're, dealing with, you're dealing with people here and there's, there's all sorts of shades of grey around a legal interpretation. So, Rob, we'll actually get you to jump in at this point. Could you give us a sense of the intercepts from CFs nine to ten, nine, seven to nine? Yeah, so CF uh, seven was notable for another of those uh, child overboard threats. Um, she was intercepted by Bunnery in, in the vicinity of Ashmore uh, on the 22nd of October. She was escorted to Ashmore and then um, anchored in the lagoon. And then there were quite a number of reported incidents on uh, on board CF7, uh, including actual incidents of, of people jumping off 
the vessel into the lagoon at Ashmore, uh, self-harm threats, etc., etc. But ultimately, she was um, directed back towards Indonesia. So she was a, she was ultimately a, a, a turn back. Uh, Vate was actually uh, Wes and I and the Gong. She was our uh, interception, but she was quite unusual because. Uh, first of all, she was carrying 31 Vietnamese, so we hadn't had a Vietnamese intercept since, well, for, for two decades. Um, and she was intercepted north of the Tiwis, so she had come, you know, quite a different route. Um, and we intercepted her on the 27th of October. We held her off the, out of sight of the Tiwis, so they didn't get a conception of where they were. And Wes might be able to correct me, but well over 24 hours, I think we were going into our second or third day, while we held there whilst... Um, decisions were made as to what we were going to do with this vessel, given that it was so far from, from Ashmore. Um, there was a bit of passive resistance to the boarding party. We trans- we rotated the boarding party every, uh, every uh, I think, about 12 hours. We had passive resistance. And at one stage, we had, you know, they took down all the awnings we put up for sun cover. It was very hot, obviously. Uh, and at one stage, we had a lot of young men in particular sitting or standing up on the gunnels threatening to jump into the water and I remember this quite distinctly because I was talking to the, the the sort of the leader of the of the vessel who spoke some broken English and we'd found a, a Vietnamese English dictionary and I was communicating with him via that um, and I remember as I'd come across to do the next relief of the boarding party and negotiate with this this bloke I'd seen someone down the back washing their hand uh, just you know leaning over the the transom washing their hand uh, they'd obviously cut it and there was a little bit of blood in the water and i remember that uh, i got on board there was trying to, to help defuse the situation these uh, people up on the gunnels and within minutes there were four tiger sharks just circling the boat and these were big buggers i mean they were two meters plus i remember very distinctly and I opened up the dictionary and very conveniently it had a picture of a shark where there was you know shark in english and i was pointing to this dictionary and saying to this guy look look down there and he said mm-hmm. and then all the blokes got off the transom and uh, the gunnels and didn't attempt to jump into water again so that was nature coming to our rescue for once at sea um, so ultimately what we had to do with her was tow her all the way to Ashmore um, and again Wes might have something to say but uh, I think that was a couple of very sleepless nights and days for Wes because uh, as has been said these boats just tended to fall apart uh, if you put them under any sort of stress and pressure, they were very unseaworthy. But we towed her all the way to Ashmore, several days' worth of towing. Um, so I think in particular for Wes and our NAV, who was a RNZN um, exchange officer, Brock Simons, uh, you know, they were very, very sleepless nights. I remember we had a permanently, we had a member watch on deck down on the quarter deck with an axe, you know, ready to sever the tow line, uh, which is what you do in, a, in an extremist situation, uh, for 24, you know, 24 hours a day while we did that tow. We eventually got her to Ashmore, anchored her in Ashmore in the lagoon, and um, we uh, the people were then transferred onto Tobruk, and they were then uh, transferred onto, I'm not sure whether it was Nauru or Christmas Island. So CF-9 was detected inside the Australian Territorial Sea around Ashmore. That was 31 October, so a few days later. Uh, she was boarded by Bunbury. The fuel lines had been cut, and as Richard said, that was a common modus operandi. Uh, the stokers from Arunta tried desperately uh, to repair it, but it just couldn't get the engine going. They'd done such a good job on destroying it. Um, she was also, CF-9 was also the, the subject of a number of child overboard threats uh, and a range of other incidents of unrest, including hunger strikes and the like. Um, things settled on the vessel once it 
that uh, was towed into the Ashmore Lagoon and the people understood that the vessel wouldn't be turned back towards Indonesia and eventually they were transferred to Tobruk on the 9th of November and uh, sent off to Christmas Island as well. I think, Rob, if I just add a little bit about Siev 8, um, the, the secret to our success in, in Siev 8, and this is probably the difference between Siev 8 and, and Siev 10, is that in Siev 8, we were doing, as Richard suggested, we did the shadowing piece first and we knew what we were up against. We were watching, not with your fire control radar, Richard, but with our um, very clunky old nav radar, um, this Siev come down for a little while. And I think once you um, understand your target a little better, then the opportunity to um, get your boarding party on board um, establish moral ascendancy, stop the sabotage, and you, you then open up the opportunities for government to impose its will. And, and I guess that was the secret to my success early um, in doing those 150 boardings that Rob and I had under our belts was that to get on board early and to do those things um, usually ended up in success. Um, Rob does rightly describe the towing um, situation once you're on board, though, and if you have control of the engine room, then you can get your charge on board or your second tiff, strengthen the bow, um, set the tow up, and and if we were towing long distances, and CF8, as Rob rightly pointed out, was a, was a long way, um, then you can tow successfully as well if you do it very slowly, cognizant of the weather, um, dropping the toe when you see things are not going terribly well, you need to do a bit more work, and then pick it back up and and, and head off again. But yeah, I think that uh, early getting on board is 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 paramount to success. Wes, we're about to come to CF10 in November. That's just two months after this has all sort of kicked off. Um, CF10 was the Indonesian fishing, fishing vessel Samba Lastari with over 160 refugees on board. The intercept involved the Wollongong and the Australian customs vessel Arnhem Bay. Would you mind talking us through the initial stages of the interception? Thank you. Yes. We were at Ashmore on patrol um, in the southern patrol area of Ashmore. Uh, there were a couple of patrol areas, one to the north of me and one to the south. I got word from Arnhem Bay that, uh, and I was surprised to see Arnhem Bay up there. Back then, um, we didn't have much knowledge of um, customs and what customs was doing, but Arnhem, and we'd been doing this shadowing type approach. Um, Arnhem Bay then radioed that she actually um, was in company with the CF. I was then directed by Norcom to go and join Arnhem Bay and to board the vessel um, to um, do the things that we normally did and to um, successfully, once we'd have been boarded, to take it to Ashmore Island. Um, so off we went very quickly and the issue with CIV-10 was that um, we didn't actually know how many people were on board. Um, I was told there were about 30 people on board. Um, the issue for me, though, was that Arnhem Bay was in close company and that the CF knew that Arnhem Bay was there. So I think Arnhem, I think uh, CF-10 was a little different to start with in terms of I was worried that they were setting up for a solar situation given that they could see an Australian ship 
um, very close. As we were transiting north, we had um, reports that a knife had been thrown into the water. Um, we then heard that planking had been removed and was being thrown into the water. And Rob and I had a number of boardings under our belts. I think, you know, Wollongong was very well worked up. You know, I think it was something like 150, and this was towards um, the latter part of my command. So we had a fairly lean, mean fighting machine of a boarding party um, that knew its stuff and were ready to go. The good thing about CIV-8 was that CIV-8 was essentially a workup for CIV-10. So our rules of engagement had been set up around CIV-8 and we actually knew um, what to do when we when we got there. And um, we're about 22 miles from Ashmore when we joined the group. I put Arnhem Bay um, into the port quarter. I took the starboard quarter. And given the um, degree of readiness for Solus, and once we were established there, we could see there was oil being pumped overboard. Um, there was planking coming off. And I, I sent another immediate signal to Norcom saying, we need to board now, a solar situation is imminent. Can you just um, tell me here for a second, for the unfamiliar, what is solace? Um, situation of life at sea, or safety of life at sea, I should say. So solace means that we need to go and rescue people, essentially. As mariners, as Richard has pointed out, um, our job is to prefer, preserve life at sea. Um, our job is also to um, do the work of the government and that policy is sometimes um, difficult to, to bring the two together but that was what we were paid to do and I think we did it very well and you know I've heard a couple of comments already about boarding parties and teams you know my team was absolutely outstanding on that day as well and I just want to say that straight up front. Anyway, so um, off we went. We're in this situation. The the um, order to board needs to come um, through Norcom from Canberra. And uh, I remember those excruciating moments, and Rob will be able to talk to these, no doubt. But we put the rib in the water because I wanted to be ready to go very, very quickly because our experience had been sabotage, um, I was worried when I saw fuel coming out the back of the vessel. Um, fire was a big threat. And uh, as it was, we got the order to board. And uh, the order to board, um, Rob and his team was over there straight away. And from my position on the bridge, the first thing I saw as Rob and his team was heading in was the first fire and the smoke from the first fire on board. And Rob, you might want to take up the story from here on in. Yeah, that's um, where Seti had us there waiting uh, just for the for the go, and we we're in the rib off the starboard quarter of uh, of Sungulastari, and you know we were surrounded by this oil or fuel slick that Wes has uh, talked about, thinking hmm, this is this is not looking like it's going to go all that well. Um, so as soon as Wes said go, we we came alongside. I remember it was quite a tricky boarding because. Uh, she was riding very high out of the water. I mean, to get up onto the deck was at least a two-metre climb from memory because – so she was one of these big fishing vessels or coastal traders, and she was completely empty in terms of ballast. All that was on board was people, and so she was riding very high out of the water. It was about a sea state four. She was lolling a lot in the troughs, and we noticed there was this rubbing strake about, about half a metre off the waterline, and then there was another one and a half metres up to the – 
to the deck, but they boarded in the the uh, the little access way through the through the guardrails. Um, we couldn't get the the grappling ladder up, and so what we did was the boat driver was Matty Eden um, took us in, took the rib in, and essentially as she rolled down towards us, a member of the boarding party would jump onto the rubbing strake, grab <laughs> grab hold of what they could up on the. Uh, the guardrail and the deck and then haul themselves up and we were doing that but just to set the scene during the boarding this whole boarding what I'm about to describe took less than five minutes from the time we pulled up alongside to try and get on board to the time we were (laughs) were jumping off the vessel into the water and during that period two of my boarding team um, uh, Hogarth and and Jace Hillier and uh, and one of my stokers, Hogarth, Hoagie, never actually got on board. They were still clinging to the side of this ship, helping us pull people overboard. Um, that's how quickly this this boarding um, this boarding rolled out. Anyway, I got on board. Um, Maxie Walker, one of the bosun's mates, got on board. The buffer, Mel Yardley, was on board, and also the second engineer, Phil uh, Po Mt. Phil were on board. As soon as we got on board. Like we said, we noticed smoke. So I sent um, the second to, I said, you know, go down quickly, check if there's something in there we can get control of early. He was like one, there was a big open um, sort of cargo hatch in the forecastle of this thing, uh, probably, th- you know, two metres by three metres opening hatch. And as we got on board, we saw some people, um, you know, milling around this and pointing into this hatch. Anyway, we saw this trickle of smoke coming up, as Wes had said. We were going to send... Uh, uh, the second engineer down to see if there was anything going on that we could get control of early. He was like one, two steps down the ladder and we had this massive explosion on board and then the smoke started to thicken up. People, people, so we pulled, pulled obviously he just, you know, we pulled him out um, and it just went south very, very quickly thereafter. The smoke was very thick and dense, you know, that diesel smoke. Um, and what happened was, as I said, she was riding very high out of the water because she had no ballast whatsoever. And all of the people rushed over, you know, the 164 people rushed over to the starboard side. And the whole thing started to tip. And I thought, oh, my God, she's going to capsize. We're going to, you know, mass loss of life. So we started to crowd people back to the to the port side, trying to distribute the weight just to get a more even keel. There was a big sort of one-metre cube water container on the forecastle forward of this hatch opening and uh maxi walker i remember tried to cut it through it with his knife but it was just too thick we thought oh if we can flood a little bit of water into the hold we'll maybe put the put the fire out and bring a little bit of ballast back um it was a fresh water container but we couldn't get through it. it was just so thick this plastic anyway the the the, the some people had already jumped overboard Wes mentioned this, this was really unusual too because when we got there, everyone was wearing orange flotation devices, which was a matter of some concern for us. Anyway, some had jumped overboard, the smoke was really, really thick and I just said, you know, I talked very quickly with Wes, said, we've got to get them off, I said go. So we just started telling people, get into the water, get into the water and Wes at the moment, at this time was launching boats, we even launched one of our uh, life rafts to drag it across for people to get into. Um, Wes was talking to Arnhem Bay to get their boats and ribs in the water to help us further as well. So we just said, look, get into the water because, you know, if you don't go into the water, you're going you're gonna to smoke is the, you know, the real risk here. You die of inhalation uh, before you'll get the flames in this situation. And it, within five minutes of being on board, it was just too thick. We couldn't breathe anymore. So uh, I got the buffer to call the recoil, which meant... The sea boat came in alongside to try and get the crew off, uh, our people off. We kicked down the gunnels to get people overboard. 
Uh, we recoiled. We got as many of my boarding team as we could into the boat. Uh, we couldn't get them all in, so the rest of us just jumped into the water and swam out to the boat. I remember that quite distinctly because my wonderful RAN pattern life jacket didn't work, <laughs> but luckily I was wearing a, uh, a um, bladder full of fresh water, which helped us with flotation. Uh, and so that was the boarding, and all of that took about took about five minutes. We quickly took the remainder of the boarding party back to the gong um, and put them up on board because uh, Wes and Brock Simons were then sort of organising internally how we we're going to do this recovery. And then I and Matty Eden and um, and Toddy went back out in the rib to start pulling people out of the water. Wow. Wes, would you mind taking up the story from here to tell us how Wollongong and Arnhem Bay responded? Yeah, sure. So the great thing about Arnhem Bay was they had two very fast ribs. And so we got Arnhem Bay's ribs in there straight away. Rob had done a fantastic job in starting to get people off. And my priorities then was to get everybody off the sieve um, into the water, away from the, the quick threat, and then get the ribs, all of them, including my boarding party rib, um, picking up people out of the water. It was getting towards sunset, so we needed to do this very, very quickly and there was a lot of flotsam in the water. So I had three fast ribs essentially um, working um, a line of people and the good thing about Ashmore was that as the sun was setting, the wind was dropping and the current was quite strong, so it was taking people naturally away from the away from the rib, uh, sorry, away from the Siev, which actually sank about 10 minutes after Rob and his team had got off. So it just burned to the waterline very, very quickly. They're very dry, they're tender dry, and they just go. Um, With all these people in the water, I thought, goodness me, there's a lot more than 30 people, which was the report that came down. And there was over 100 people in the water. Um, I gave Arnhem Bay freedom of manoeuvre just to make sure that she could keep her lee so that she could keep her sea boat working, her sea boats working. And I did the same thing for me. Um, there was talk of rigging stram- scrambling nets and all those kinds of things. I just felt that um, given what Richard described, it was absolutely accurate. You know, I had something like 108 males, 23 females and 33 children under 12 years old um, that we pulled out of the water. Now, those 108 very strong males were climbing over um, females and children um, to get into a life raft or into a boat. And so I wanted to try and maintain as much control over that as I could, and I felt that having scrambling nets rigged was probably not a good thing, and that would stop my freedom of manoeuvre. I needed to use my engines to keep my lead. So um, we did that, and we managed to pick them up in about 45 minutes. Um, And look, the customs guys did a fantastic job. That ACV had five people on board, um, managed two ribs, and um, early early on in the operation, um, I got that dreadful call, which was, um, the customs guys had just pulled uh, pulled in to the customs rib um, an unconscious female and were taking her to Arnhem Bay and I sent my medical team, um, which comprised of one, um, across to the customs vessel to, to attend that unconscious person. So that took my medical team out, but we were, we were doing as best we possibly could to... Um, 
substantiate the the, the customs team um, as it was. So my medic was over there. Um, then um, the second um, unconscious person was picked up um, by my rib and brought back to Wollongong. So my, my secondary medical team, um, which was my AB chef and one of my TIFs, my chief TIF, um, was was undertaking CPR on our wardroom table um, on this second person. Um, so the rescue went on. Um, we managed to get everybody on board. Um, my problem was then that um, I didn't know how many people were in the water. Um, I'd, I'd had my buffer who was done an am- who was doing an amazing job um, trying to find out numbers. I had people saying my children are lost. I had um, husband saying my wife is lost. I had wives saying my husband isn't here. And I had half the people on Arnhem Bay and I had half the people on board Wollongong and I had all this flotsam in the water. The sun was setting and the um, flotsam was clothing, was suitcases, was, um, you know, so, you know, no numbers. Anyway, so we called up a Coast Watch aircraft and, and got him using his fleur over the top. I sent my boats back out, all the boats back out, lifting up um, debris and clothing and making sure there was nobody left while we tried to reunite families and find out if we were missing anybody on board. As it turned out, um, we had everybody, including two deceased, um, on board the two vessels. And so I guess that was the first moment that we could, and this was well and truly dark by then, um, that we could just um, pause and reflect and get the families reunited. So, And it wasn't really until all those people were together that we knew that we had everybody on board until, you know, the cries of, well, where are my kids um, kind of stopped. And so there was a huge boat transfer going on between the two vessels to actually reunite all those people. Um, while this was going on, um, you know, the team on board were feeding, children were um, attending um, with O2 therapy, um, were tending cuts and scratches and wounds and um, we were moving bodies to, um, I declared both people deceased by then. Um, it was a, it was a big day. Um, we were feeding as many people as we could. And uh, then I had to make a decision on, um, where we were going to go and what we were going to do. Um, fortunately, um, Launceston, I think it was, um, was on her way out to render some assistance and I'm forever in his debt. Uh, Commander Ken Burley, um, arrived um, pretty late into the night. It must have been um, about midnight, I think, and uh, I motored Arnhem Bay and myself down towards the lagoon at Ashmore um, in pitch black, and the lagoon, as uh, Warramunga described, is uh, fairly tight, but... Um, and I was very concerned about the number of people on board. I wasn't so concerned about the ACV because she was much newer than the patrol boat and um, she was a brand-new ship out of Austal, essentially. But um, we were well and truly exceeding um, our normal um, passenger load and so very gingerly while the charge was down below, um, pulling out every book that he could possibly find on stability in Fremantle-class patrol boats, we motored down towards Ashmore and uh, came into the lagoon um, 
I can't remember whether Ken was already in there. I think he was, and I think he was, I think he was shining lights in our direction to kind of mark the channel um, as we went in and uh, we went to anchor. The next day, um, as and Tobruk seemed to be the lifesaver of everybody, um, Tobruk turned up and we did a big boat transfer, um, moving moving people across to Tobruk to um, actually um, get everybody onto a big ship and, uh, and, and keep them safe. But um, I guess the testament was the, the troops, they did an amazing job and I asked my team, and I know as Richard has already spoken about, there's a lot of people still hurt out there. Um, they were asked to go above and beyond and they behaved like Royal Australian Navy sailors always do in an outstanding and exemplary fashion. And uh, it wasn't just uh, wasn't just that day. The coroner then inquired into it and we all had an appointment with the coroner and he found something similar. So would you mind taking us through um, the coronial inquiry in Fremantle to the deaths of Najan Hassani and Fatima Hassani? You had to attend, right? What was the outcome? Um, so I attended, customs attended, and... Um, certain members of my boarding party attended. Um, we gave evidence um, for two days, I think. Um, I gave evidence for six hours. We were questioned um, by a QC that was acting for the passengers on board the Sumbula Stari. Um, we're also questioned by the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission because in the coroner's court, anybody can um, ask questions as we found out. And uh, so the the whole story came to light. Um, there were some criticisms of what we'd done, um, which were later proven to be incorrect or unsubstantiated. And the outcome was that um, every effort was made to rescue and resuscitate the two deceased. Um, both deceased had died before they recovered from the water that the Naval Boarding Party, which Rob led, demonstrated considerable courage, and I'm reading for the, from the coroner's report now, and concern for all those on board Sumba Lestari. Um, evidence that came from some of the passengers was proven to be wrong or incorrect. And um, the actions of the customs and naval officers contrasted with those of people smugglers and the crew of the Sumba Lestari who had little regard for the safety of those on board. One of the things we did take to the coroner's court was the life jacket that Rob very cleverly had um, kept and uh, those orange life jackets that um, the people smugglers had put um, the passengers into were essentially orange material filled with scrap pieces of polystyrene. They made no um, life preservation um, capability whatsoever, were built to no standards and was seen to probably hinder um, someone in one of those things as compared to save their life, um, which was um, very, very disappointing. And so um, the coroner... Um, uh, found that the the compelling evidence given by the Commonwealth's witnesses orally and in writing reflected an outstanding job done by all the crew members from both vessels on the 8th of November 2001. 
So Cameron, what happened to the survivors of the Sea of Ten? Thanks, Michelle. I, I might just um, address a couple of things that Richard and Wes and Rob have said before I move on to that. Uh, you talked about uh, the tradition of mariners to rescue people at sea and uh, what was going on in Canberra. So that's where I was. I was in strategic command and I was a newly minted lieutenant commander, but I was turning up to the People's Battalion Task Force and Prime Minister and Cabinet. And it's really important to understand the context of what was going on at this point. So uh, Tampa had arrived in August. Uh, Relax Operation Relax 1 was underway. And then September the 11th happened and the focus really shifted. So I've gone through my notebooks and I'm taking as many notes about invading Afghanistan as I am about what's going on off, at, off Ashmore and at Christmas Island. The other thing that's happening is you've got a federal election underway. So um, there's a lot of uh, difficult dynamics. The, um, the point about the, the safety issue is that we're sitting there getting these reports from uh, the ships that are on scene. And we're getting a sense. So, I mean, some of this I'm just hearing for the first time, but some of it we're getting in the reporting and we're just seeing how desperate the situation is. And we're turning up to meetings where people are saying, do not get those people off the CFs. We want them turned around. We want them sent back to Indonesia and really heated uh, exchanges between uh, officers in uniform, not just legal officers, but ADF officers in uniform, and public servants in suits. And some of it's reflected in the Senate inquiry report. There's a, a, a notes a heated exchange between CDF and the Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Maximal Wilton. So Admiral Barry and he had an exchange, but that was reflected across uh, many people uh, during that period uh, with us saying, no, this is what the Navy does, and we're not going to advise members of the Navy to do something unlawful um, and uh, but a, a lot of pressure, political pressure to uh, get things turned around. The other thing to understand is the, uh, the legal situation. So the legislation that I talked about right at the beginning covered a period from the 27th of August, which is when Tampa arrived, to the 27th of September, which basically is, I know of no other legislation like it uh, since the Eureka Stockade, which basically indemnified the ADF for everything that it did during that period and just said that you can't bring an action. And then from 27th September, that's when you have turning the boats around. So the powers are then available to turn the boats around. So Richard talked about taking them to the edge of the contiguous zone and turning around and that was getting ridiculous. Um, so the powers then kick in from the 27th of September. So I think we were talking about 12 boats. I think that four or so sank. I think another four were taken into lagoons or off Christmas and those people were taken to... Uh, Manus and Nauru, but about four got turned around. And the real focus from government was to get those vessels turned around. So we were trying to um, set up a situation where the, the people at sea had the power to do that, um, but also resisting this pressure to make sure that that happened at any cost. And I should also underline, I said we're talking about invasion of Afghanistan, also a real focus on domestic counterterrorism. So you've got this happening at sea and I can hear you saying no one seemed to really care uh, about what was going on at sea. Some people did, but the focus was, all right, this thing's happening at sea, that's what's being taken care of. We're also really worried about terrorist attacks at home, planes hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. We're also worried about going to Afghanistan. So at the higher command level and at the political level of government, the focus is in a number of different places and everything seemed imperative. I just remember in one week we had uh, ANSET collapse as well, um, and there was an operation to try and move people by air, and then you've got the Twin Towers, and you've got relics going on. 
domestic counterterrorism. Uh, the uh, Prime Minister stranded in the United States just after September 11th. There's no aircraft in the air. So I think it's worth setting that scene. Um, I, it's long troubled me that uh, the people we're speaking with now didn't get the recognition they deserved. And part of that's because of the political uh, dynamics and operational dynamics that were in play at the time. As the CF-10... Sorry, can I just also just butt in for a sec and, and just say that, look, the interesting point is as well is is, is the success of this too because um, uh, it was actually the turning back of those few boats that broke the people smugglers' um, um, business plan. I mean, I mentioned at the start it was $10,000 US per individual or $15,000 US per family. Well, 200 people turning back up in Roti demanding their money back... Um, you know, was was something that that really that really hit these people smugglers, um, you know, people that deal in human misery like this. But it was a huge, huge business. So sorry to interrupt them, but you know, it was great to hear from, from Cameron about what was happening back in Canberra because we had no idea. Um, we were so focused on 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 at the front end, but um, you know the the. The policy of turning back the boats was was really fraught with a whole bunch of issues, but. I tend to think at the back of my mind, if we hadn't turned back those boats successfully, you know, they would have just kept on coming. I just thought I'd throw that in. I agree with you, Richard. I think that that is the case. The fact that four got turned around, that was enough. I can understand why it was an imperative to do that. There were substantial difficulties with doing it. I'm confident that the law from the domestic side covered it, but the international legal arguments were pretty difficult um, and the political perspective was difficult. Um, but I do think that that... Uh, led to an acceptable, as acceptable as it can be, an acceptable result that the boat stopped coming. But trying to persuade people that uh, you can't just put everyone on these boats and send them back was quite difficult at times. Uh, as to the survivors of CF-10, I think it's an interesting point that uh, they were subsequently taken to Manus. So most of the Afghans ended up in Manus and they were processed by uh, UNHCR, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and um, a lot of the Iraqis and the Iranians were found to be refugees. Uh, I've got the figures here. Um, so I think that um, 520 people were found to be refugees and 975 were not. Uh, 150 people went to New Zealand, but uh, of those who didn't go to New Zealand, only 7% of the Afghans were found to be refugees uh, under the definition. And what's interesting about that was that the fall of the Taliban uh, in 2002 then meant that their well-founded fear of persecution had altered. So the reason they left Afghanistan, uh, was, uh, the circumstances had changed, so they changed their entitlement to refugee status. So there's an interesting outcome there. It's been a fascinating opportunity for us to discuss um, two months at the uh, sort of and the, the, the sort of start of Operation Relax, I guess. Um, I'd like to thank the panel for participating in this uh podcast at this point. But what I would like to do before we leave is to ask you for your thoughts on the legacies of the first 10 CIEV interceptions by the RAN. Would you mind kicking that off, please, Richard? Oh, yes, sure, Misha. Um, I think the, the big one from my perspective was, you know, I'd joined a Navy um, that we'd been very much focused on high-end warfare um, uh, and, and high-end operations, certainly in the major surface ships. And I think there's a real um, uh, legacy for for us was 
a need to understand the range of significant stakeholders that are that are involved around Navy and everything we do on a continual basis, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So, you know, we're paid to to professionally and, and ethically implement government policy, but there's a government, there's an opposition, there's a political system, there's the Australian public, there's the media, there's the CDF, the Chief of Navy, the ADF on its whole, the Navy, people smugglers and everyone. Um, and so I, I think the legacy is an understanding of the political aspect of all operations and the realisation of the numerous voices in any conversation and the fact that uh, that leadership in the Navy demands that you understand that and that you can um, describe that and, and, ish, and across your whole ship. Um, so it's not just about whether you're the, you're the best at anti-submarine warfare, gunnery. Well, that's easy. The complexities that we train to these days, and I see it on, in all our leadership courses, I think a lot of it comes out of a realisation from relics that the real difficult stuff is on the boundaries of that, it's below high-end operations and the need as a commander to be across all the aspects of maritime law and, and ethics and leadership to a much higher level than perhaps we really comprehended, certainly in the 80s and 90s. Um, so that's kind of the legacy for me. I think we've got a much more professional and better Navy um, um, out, of, out, of, out of it um, because we actually understand where we sit better in the national conversation, the need to work at it. Cameron, would you mind taking up the uh, the reins from here? Yes, I'd say there's two key legacies for me. The first is with respect to naval operations particularly, and the second is with respect to government. But the first point is that from relics, then we move into a new era, which is now expressed in Maritime Border Command, we have a Maritime Powers Act, we have a much better whole-of-government perspective on these sorts of operations that are below the threshold of warfare. Um, so that was a, that's been a significant part of my experience in the 20 years since. Um, the other point I'd make is that um, that was a, a real turning point with respect to executive power. I think 2001 as a whole was a key turning point for the world and particularly for Australia. So that case, Ruddock and Vidalis, full court of the federal court, there hasn't been a situation like it where we're conducting operation and we're arguing about that operation in the full court of the federal court at the same time. So conducting litigation at the same time as the operation. Then you get a decision about executive power, which is quite surprising uh, and very powerful. And then that sets up a cascade of uh, use, uses of the ADF by government, which... Um, for which there has to be a renegotiation of the relationship between the ADF and government to some extent, particularly after the Children Overboard Senate inquiry, uh, but also using the ADF under executive power, which means that you're using it without statutory authority in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, counterterrorism, and so on. So there's some, it's too hard to go into the details of it, but some really significant points came out of the case that arose from that operation. Rob, would you like to, uh, to put in your thoughts? So, I mean... First, uh, I agree absolutely with what uh, Cameron and Richard have said, and uh, I suspect I'm going to agree absolutely with what Wes might have to say as well. So I guess the only thing I would add, um, and I'll leave the sort of the bigger picture stuff to Wes, because he was, in fact, the, the CO for CF10, is that I just thought that the whole ship's company 
response at CF10 just proved the RAN's training system because, you know, it went to custard in a matter of seconds. No one panicked, just got on, did jobs, planned on the run, adjusted the plan on the run. People did multiple things. You know, we're looking after all these uh, people on the deck. It's middle of the night. We're trying to get into Ashmore. The navigator's trying to do that. The CEO's trying to make sure we don't run aground. we got, you know, the chief tiff monitoring the engines with the second at the same time as providing the medical party. We had, you know, closed up at uh, pilotage stations while we're still trying to feed all these people. You know, in a, in a ship's company of 26, so I think it just goes to show that the training system obviously works. And Wes, how would you, um, what would you like to say about the legacies of these so, sea operations? Uh, so thank you. I, I think that um, firstly, to talk to the point of whole of government very quickly, and that is just in terms of customs and the evolution into Australian Border Force and the Patrol Boat Force. I think um, out of this has come a lot more jointery in that space and, and a significant capability that we didn't have back then. And I think that's to be applauded. Um, also, you know, the work that ACV Arnhem Bay did on the day, as I said before, was just amazing. And we would have had a completely different outcome and would have had to employ a completely different strategy if we didn't have that customs vessel with us. So hats off to them. I think uh, the second point um, is really in terms of the lessons learned. And in the coroner's court, I tabled 10 recommendations from the Navy's perspective, from Rob and my experience of a Fremantle class patrol boat under those conditions. Those recommendations were then taken into the Armadale class patrol boat and became part of the operating concept and the function and performance document that then became the Armadale class patrol boats. And I'm pleased to report, and I hope I'm not wrong, but Armadale didn't have to do those kind of things that we did, although they experienced some pretty heavy moments and they've done some amazing jobs out there. Um, they had a better set of tools um, to actually do that work with. And I think that was the legacy from my perspective of what this was all about. And the final point I want to reflect on is something that we've all said today, and that is um, to those sailors and officers that were a part of this whole Operation Relics piece, to what an amazing job you all did and there are people out there hurting today and they should be justifiably proud of what they achieved. Sadly, that's all we have time for now. My sincere thanks to Richard Menhenick, Cameron Moore, Rob McLaughlin and Wes Heron. If you have found any of the content in this podcast disturbing, in Australia you can call Lifeline on 131114. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.